Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast for your free audiobook. My name is Amanda Span. I'm the founder of Alchemy App, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Sheena Allen. I am part of the Alchemy team, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Effie Brown, and I'm a producer of Dear White People, Real Women Have Curves. And recently, you probably saw me on HBO's Project Greenlight. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Tuning in to episode 65 of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie Broadnax and I am your host. This episode is titled DeRay, Jake Choi, Hyperforce Neo, and Wonder Woman. So, divided up into four segments. The fourth segment, a very quick one. DeRay is our first interviewee, along with co-host Karan, and he talks about his new mayoral campaign for the city of Baltimore. You may know him best from his social justice work on Twitter, and he's appeared all over media. He's been on late night talk shows. He's been on daytime talk shows. He's been in radio interviews and podcast interviews all over. So he sits down and talks to us here on BGN about his latest efforts with the city of Baltimore. Our second segment is with Jake Choi. Jake Choi is an actor. He's appeared in film and TV shows as well as national television commercial spots. And he talked to us about Asian representation and its lack thereof in mainstream cinema and television. And we sit down with co-hosts Kayla, Rebecca, and KB and discuss all things from what happened with the Oscars and the faux pas with Chris Rock's very inappropriate comments towards Asian Americans and also with the recent controversy behind the Asian American Iron Fist and why that an Asian American superhero is really needed in our comics today. So Jake shed some light for us on that topic. 
In our third segment, Kayla sits down in a solo interview with Jarrett Williams. Jarrett Williams is the creator of Hyperforce Neo, an all-ages comic book with an African-American lead character, and it's a creator-owned series from Z2 Comics, which follows Dean Masters, a high school freshman, who leads a crew of students. And they talk about everything from not only comic books, but anime and growing up blurry. And our last segment, which is very short, it's only about a minute and a minute and a half long, I recently had attended the Batman vs. Superman press conference. Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice is released in theaters this Friday, and I asked Gal Gadot, who plays the role of Wonder Woman, a question about her role and how it was researched and what her thoughts was on fulfilling the shoes of one of the biggest comic book superheroines of all time. So I wanted to put that soundbite in because I thought it was a really important answer that she gave and very profound, which came with some applause and some fanfare. So it's definitely worth adding in to this show. So we have, again, a fully packed episode, lots of really great guests, lots of fun, entertaining information, and look forward to you guys enjoying yet another great episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. This is episode 65, coming at you. DeRay McKesson is a civil rights activist. McKesson is a member of the Movement for Black Lives and is known for his activism via social media outlets, such as Twitter and Instagram, and has been active in protests in Ferguson, Missouri and Baltimore, Maryland. McKesson has also participated in discussion and has written for The Huffington Post and The Guardian. Along with Janetta Elsey, McKesson has launched Campaign Zero, a policy platform to end police violence. On February 3, 2016, McKesson announced his candidacy for the 2016 Baltimore mayoral election. Hey everybody, this is Karan. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. For the last few years, we've seen new faces and heard new voices on and offline that quickly became recognized as catalysts for change. One of such voices is that of DeRay McKesson, known by his blue vest and broad smile, His voice is one that will not back down, and today we welcome him to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Oh, it's good to be here. (laughs) So good to have you. I'm very excited to talk to you today. First things first, Mr. McKesson, Eastside, Zone 18, representing Baltimore. What's up? Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. You know, I'm from (laughs) Pablo Grove and Pressbury, which is, you know, now they call it Coppin' Heights. I don't really know. uh, That wasn't what we called it when I was a kid. Is that what they're calling it now? Yeah, it's called Coppin Heights. Isn't that great? How pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I might I might just lose my non-regional dialect talking to you because you're from home, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one to share the sentiment, but I'm really proud to see your face and hear your voice rise amidst the noise. What do you make of our current political climate? You know, it's been interesting being a candidate because, you know, obviously before I put my name in, I was watching from the outside, and there are two things that really uh, stand out. One is, that the process of running privileges, um, it privileges the establishment, right? Which is what we already knew, but it does mm-hmm. in a way that that people don't actually have to take positions. People don't actually have to know anything about policy, uh, that it's a battle of like who can yell the most, right? Who yells the loudest, which is fascinating. It's like a really interesting thing to to actually be in as opposed to watch from the outside. Mm-hmm. And the second is that fundraising is really uh, the way we fund campaigns like has to change. Like it is, it's really hard. Um, 
in a way that I just had no clue, you know? So for those of you who don't know, DeRay has thrown his hat into the ring for the mayoral race for Baltimore City for 2016. What on earth? I just, I have to ask you why. Yeah, you know, like you, Baltimore's home, or Baltimore was home, and for you, and the city has a struggle for so long to mm-hmm. get out of a rut, right? To be the city that we know it can be. And part of that has been that there has been no strategy and no no plan that focuses on scale. And what I'm offering is like is both. So the platform that I released from the moment it was released is like the is the most comprehensive. It focuses on the things that people care about the most often, right? Crime, safety, education, but also talks about arts and culture and public health and the environment, like these things that get us to what does it mean to talk about a whole city and how do we make the city whole? And I wasn't hearing that and I wasn't seeing that. And I, and I ran to offer that for people. You know, we, we do see a lot of the same in, in the elections, especially among our incumbents. And uh, we share a lot of things because we're both from Baltimore. Most people knew of Baltimore, but it's really come onto the world stage because of the uprising. But most people are so incredibly unaware of the rich cultural heritage we have, are so unaware of the the tight-knit communities that we do have, as well as our history of of social justice. So at what point did you realize things had changed for you and your interest actually became activism? You know, I have to say that we weren't born woke, right? Something woke mm-hmm. us up. And so much of my work was around children, youth, and families. Like, I'd done it since since 99 as a teenager here in Baltimore, and I taught, opened up an after-school center. Like, that was my work. And then Mike Brown got killed, and it really changed everything. You know, like, I, I went to St. Louis as a, as a witness. I didn't go as a protester. Mm-hmm. I went around to see what was going on. Second day I was there was the first night I got tear gas, and I was like, this is wild, right? Like, and in that moment, I became a, a protester. Uh, and was like, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that this isn't other people's reality. And and when I thought about education, you know, it was this thing about you got to be alive to learn, right? I've done all this work to make sure kids have great teachers. Like, I'm a national leader in human capital in school systems. And like, Tamir Rice will never have a high school teacher. Ayanna Jones will never have a high school teacher. Mike Brown will never have a college professor. And, and my work shifted. Uh, and that was when I thought about activism in this way, right? Like, what does it mean to push from the outside mm-hmm. and force uh, people to talk about things that they would not other and force these issues? When I think about running for mayor, the common thread is this idea of telling the truth in public and being really thoughtful about the concrete things that we can do to change people's todays and tomorrows. Well, you went from being a witness to being on the world stage. How did that happen? You know, I don't know. It was very it feels very overnight. I, I had 800 followers on Twitter in August 2014. I have a little bit over 300,000 now and on Twitter. And, it, you know, it's different. I, I don't know exactly how or why. I think that it was because I was telling a consistent narrative. And people, people were listening. You know, in those early days, remember, the protest hadn't read yet. It was just in, it was just us in St. Louis. And... Yeah, and I think I was a voice, one of many voices telling what was happening. It's been it's been interesting because one of the hard things about having Twitter as the site where I have the biggest platform that I have is, you know, I still have to consume all of it before I can block you mm-hmm. or ignore it. Like I still have to read it, which is so different than Facebook. It's so different than than YouTube. Because people on YouTube, you know, they just don't read the comments. 
you know, it's interesting. It is, uh, you know, we're one of the first sets of people to have Twitter be one of our main platforms. Mm-hmm. Visible in other places, and then they lend that to Twitter. Um, and I do worry that people think that visibility automatically means wealth. You know, yes. <laughs> and I'm broke. I'm broke. So, <laughs> so that's interesting. And uh, you know, I, I'm always really clear that I'm one of many people doing work, right? That it'll take all of us working together, and that my work doesn't have to be your work. So you yeah, know, it's been a, it's been fascinating. I've tried to use the platforms to amplify the work of other people, to correct the record, to and to tell the truth. Right, that so much of protest has been about telling the truth in public. And I think of that when I when me and Colbert talked about white privilege on network television. Right, like things that have I not happened before. And, you know, can I get better? Yes. You know, when I think about that interview, I wish that I had defined white privilege, right? Mm-hmm. It just, everything moves so quickly and we just didn't get a chance. But trying to be really thoughtful about using those moments to, um, you know, to to push this message and this work. I think it's an, it's an important and, and very valuable story about how one voice can make such a difference and that all of our voices are definitely needed at the table. Some say that racism is not an issue or not as much of an issue for millennials. And it's a very sad mixed message for kids who are growing up in a more racially diverse world than ever. What do you say to them and how can they make a positive impact when they do come face to face with the reality that's racism? Yeah, you know, race is always at play. It is in this America. And to ignore it means that that you just misunderstand the current climate in that I do think that we can, and I don't know if it'll be soon, but I think we can live in a world where people can acknowledge the importance of culture and and ethnicity without being normative, right? That like black Mm -hmm. doesn't mean good or bad, uh, but blackness functions still, right? Which is hard in a country where racism is just so deep. And for kids, you know, and this is what I say in protests, is that like talking about it is the first step. But the acknowledgement is not the end of the work, right? The acknowledgement is the beginning of the work. And it's why I'll never defame people on Twitter for sort of, quote, just being on Twitter. Because what I know to be true is that, like I said before, we aren't born woke. Something woke us up. And for so many people, it is the truth telling that wakes them up. It is their first experience with something. It is them thinking about the world differently. And they're like, wow, I didn't know, right? Or, Or now I need to do this because I know. And Twitter or social media is often how people know for the first time. And that is such important work, that that is not easy work, that that is not simple work. And I think that's really powerful. For me, you know, Mike Brown's death is what woke me up, and I would never have known if it was not for Twitter. Do you think your message has been diluted or amplified because of your youth? Oh, interesting. You know, I think that the reality is in those early days, nobody knew how old I was, right? Like right. I was just a guy. <laughs> so I think that in that way, I think it is really powerful. Nobody knew I was gay, so the you know people who are homophobic, it just wasn't a they didn't know, right? Mm-hmm. People didn't know so many things, and and that's where I think you know Twitter specifically was really powerful. That you it was just a message, right? You you knew that random picture of me, and you knew the message. Mm-hmm. The youth, I, you know, in Baltimore, it's interesting because there it is a place that sort of privileges an older type of you know the the voting demographic is older, right? Definitely. And, it, and there's a privileging of older voices, like regardless of content. Mm-hmm. So that is a little different. And I, and I see that more as I'm running. 
you know, I do think that I have the strongest platform, the most robust. I think about before I entered the race, people weren't talking about the police. People weren't talking about like the minimum wage. Like, you know, I, I forced these issues to come to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who, who do privilege like an older style of leadership, regardless of sort of history or anything like that. Okay. So I have to ask you about this. I remember, uh, Another mayoral candidate, former mayor of Baltimore, Sheila Dixon, said she had no idea who you were. When you heard that, what was your first thought? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a picture that I took with her at one of the community events, so I, that was interesting to me. But, you know, part of this work in running the campaign, you know, it was going to be 80 days no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I got in and it was 80 days ago, which is... Number what, 42 in? 40, 43? Yeah, 40 ish in. So it's, okay. you know, this is a sprint no matter how I cut it, right? And the question was always can I build it? Like, can we? The goal is to build an infrastructure quickly that can allow us to get in front of as many people as possible, right? Knowing that in places that like I have a, a large social media presence in Baltimore, the people who vote are in the primary traditionally have been like over 50 year old women, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that is a particular challenge that we are being really thoughtful and innovative and in, in trying to get in front of people. Uh, but her statement didn't mean anything sort of special to me besides like highlighting something I already knew that they're working really hard in, in a condensed time frame to t translate this platform into uh, in-person is, is work, you know? It's definitely work. What do you think is the most important issue facing the ones we haven't talked about, the people who are under 50 and over 30? Oh, I think that there's so many, right? And you think about a place like Baltimore, the problems have been so entrenched for so long and there have been no solutions, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about, you know, some things that I think about often like pre-K, you know, I get so frustrated I go to the forums and people are like, we need universal pre-K. And you're like, you know what? You don't need universal, like uh, pre-K is already universal pretty much. Like people are going to pre-K, people are enrolled. There are two specific problems around absenteeism. About 25% of our kids are chronically absent in pre-K. That, that means that they miss 20 days or more. It's a real problem. And then there are about 600 low-income families who, like, you know, don't necessarily know they have access to pre-king and could be going. And those are specific problems. So I think about things like that. I think about what does it mean that 40% adults in the city are illiterate, 70,000 addicts. Like, we have to address these issues at scale. I think it's easier to talk about things like safety, right, without talking about the root cause of so many of these problems. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm focused on root causes, right? I'm focused on root causes, strategy, and scale. Like, how do we actually think about constructing strategies that will end the crisis, that will benefit everybody in the end. So it is better for all parts of the city that there are less addicts, because that means that there will, will be more people employed, there's more money in the economy, there are more people being able to support families, right? Like, it, and sometimes I worry that people uh, don't see how they are implicated in this and how uh, the solution actually benefits them too. Can we talk about this heroin unstory for a minute? And I call it an unstory because... All of a sudden, heroin is an, ap an epidemic and everybody has to find solutions when you know and I know growing up in a city like Baltimore, who has a population that is about 40 percent of functional addicts um, who still get up and go to work every day, who still take care of their children in their homes. But heroin has been a staple in our city from the time I was a child. And that has never changed. And all of a sudden, everybody wants solutions because it's crept out of the city into the suburbs, into those areas that it's not supposed to be. What say you about these issues that have plagued our communities for so long? And now that they are touching other communities, they become a priority. 
you know, we know that like racism is real, right? That's mm-hmm. like a, that is simple, that is real. And it is frustrating that so many people that we all know and love have struggled through drug addiction and, and suddenly because because addiction is becoming much more prevalent in white communities, it's now a crisis, right? That that's hard to watch right? Uh, because we've seen our families destroyed. The reality is like we're here, right? That the that our communities are still struggling, and and this might be an opportunity for us to use this focus to actually get the to get the resources and to and the and this and the response that like our our families deserve, you know, that that if this leads to more inpatient treatment, then that's a good thing for all of us, right? If this leads to more twenty four seven immediate care for people who are overdosing, like that's better for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that we should actually see if we can use this opportunity to open up more conversation about public health and the impact it has on black communities, mm-hmm. like now that there's this opening around heroin. And the same way that the movement, you know, I think about all of us who were in the street around the police uh, in August of 2014, that that created a larger space to talk about race, right? So you think about the conversations about the trans community that are happening that are a result of us standing in streets in uh, around the police in the result in the sense that like it just opened up a larger space to talk about identity and then other people uh, so thoughtfully saw the opening in that space and said let's keep pushing right mm-hmm. and now we're talking about the complexity of black identity in public in ways we have never done before so there might be an opportunity for us to use this opening now that people are talking about heroin to also talk about crack cocaine mm-hmm. to talk about mandatory minimums like to just keep pushing because people are talking in ways that they have not before so tell me about the blue vest. Oh, you know, you're so funny. Uh, it, it was cold. <laughs> That's like the thing. It was cold. And I needed, um, you know, I needed something to wear. It was cold. And and that was that. And then, uh, you know, all my stuff was in storage and I, I needed a coat, but I didn't want to, you know, keep having to pack something. So it was like I could wear a hoodie and then wear the vest. And now it just makes me feel safe. You know, I feel completely safe. I, I wear it often. Uh, I don't think I've been without it in a long time. And it's totally irrational, right? I feel safe in a very irrational way. You know, that there you have it, folks, the deep philosophical definition behind the blue vest. He was cold and now he feels safe. I love it. I love it. It's that simple. <laughs> it's that simple. So, DeRay, do you have any final thoughts? I, I I don't want this conversation to end, but do you have any final thoughts? What would you like to tell our listeners? What would you like them to know about you and about your future? Yeah, you know, it's Sunday, and I think often that I didn't know what it meant to be covered until the movement. Mm-hmm. Like, I intellectually understood it, and, like, I have lived it for 18 months in a way that is just so powerful to me. Uh, and I've recently thought about, like, I was answering a calling when I got in my car and drove nine hours, not knowing anybody in the state of Missouri and ended up in Ferguson. And my push uh, to myself in these recent months has been about making sure that I know the calling I'm responding to as time passes. Does that make sense? It does. So, uh, you know, I think I'm not actually responding to that calling from August 2014 anymore. And I just understood that recently. and. And I think I was responding to a calling to move on to something new, but I think I'm waiting for the next calling. And this is, I've been working through that. So my message to people is like, is to push yourself to think about, to continue to press about like, what's the calling you're responding to so that you like can make sure that your spirit is like aligned to the work you're doing as we all fight for a better world. 
DeRay, thank you so much. I am so inspired by your work, by your presence, and by your humor. And I thank you for joining us on Black Girl Nerds. Whoop, 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 what, what? <laughs> Be more representing. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, yes, this is Cuffy. <laughs> thank you guys yes, for joining us. <laughs> thank you guys for joining us for Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is the one and only DeRay McKesson and Karan. Talk to you soon. Black Girl Nerds podcast will return right after this brief message. This message is brought to you in part by Stranger Comics. Niobe Shia's Life is the latest comic book by Stranger Comics, featuring an elven girl, half-human, half-elf, and a series of adventures. If you check out one of the latest variants, it features something pretty special, the Black Girl Nerds logo, with a pretty awesome exclusive cover, which is just for you guys. So you can check it out on Stranger Comics' website. There's a customized bit.ly link that makes it easier to find. Go to bit.ly forward slash Niobe1BGN. That's bit.ly forward slash Niobe, N-I-O-B-E, 1BGN. If you go directly to that link, that will take you to the launch page of Stranger Comics' website. All signature editions will be available for delivery by the end of March 2016. The Black Girl Nerds exclusive cover is by Sheldon Mitchell. You can either get an unsigned or a signed cover at your leisure. And Niobe is also available in ebook form. You can get it at Amazon, Comixology, Google, Nook, Kobo, and any of your iBook stores. So check out Niobe She Is Life, a coming-of-age tale about love, betrayal, and the ultimate sacrifice by Stranger Comics. Jake Choi has been acting and modeling since 2011, working in various plays, TV shows, indie films, commercials, and print, ranging from GQ spreads to a national Best Buy campaign that premiered during the Super Bowl, starring Amy Poehler to the NBC drama Law & Order SVU. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am very excited and pleased to bring to you a great guest. He is an actor. He's starred in many films and TV shows. You may have heard of them. He's been in TV shows such as Law and Order, SBU, and The Mysteries of Laura, as well as national Super Bowl ads, including that really funny ad with Amy Poehler, the Best Buy ad. You may have checked that out during the Super Bowl. It's Jake Choi. He is here with us on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. And I'm here with co-host Kayla, our new co-host Kay, and Rebecca, who is also a co-host on Cinema and Noir that you can catch on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you, ladies, for being on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. And thank you, Jake, so much for coming on our show tonight. Thank you for having me. For one second, I thought you called me a lady. Hi! (laughs) Um, 
you're fun. <laughs> I try. No, thank you for having me. This is my first like podcast interview, so I'm excited. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, awesome. Yeah. Well, what led you to get into acting? And tell us, what are some of the pros and cons of the business? I always liked to perform ever since I was a kid. I mean, I didn't go to acting school or anything like that, but I did plays when I was like in elementary school, junior high school. And honestly, you know, I didn't catch the acting bug that young. I didn't like it. I just wanted to play basketball. That's all I thought about when I was doing those little plays. And then I played competitive basketball for like 15 years. And then I quit. And um, on a friend's suggestion, she was just kind of like, maybe you should, you know, act again, like seriously. And uh, I just started taking classes and really started falling in love with performing and, and telling stories and just exploring different characters. Also exploring different emotional crevices of myself that I never really got to really shine a light on. Wow, that's awesome. I'm amazed with, you know, a lot of the popularity of various K-dramas and J-dramas that I tend to watch. There's like very little to no Asian romantic leads in daytime and primetime U.S. shows. Why do you think that is? Oh, man, I think there are levels to this, honestly. Oh, and just to answer the uh, the other question the, earlier about the pros and cons of this business. Pros, let's see. You get to meet awesome artists and work with uh, amazing people and um, really kind of just exercise uh, your artistic muscles and expressive creative freedom. But the cons are <laughs> nothing. It's stable. You don't know when your next job is coming. You got to kind of have that balance of, okay, do I keep a survival job or not? Do I just keep my schedule free so that I can take classes or be open to auditions and shoots or performances and rehearsals? Those are the cons. Cool. Going back to the second question. Yeah, a lot of Korean dramas and Japanese dramas are so popular, not just in Asia, but the question of the very few Asian romantic leads and TV in the U.S., I think a part of it is that a lot of these, I think maybe writers in the room, most of them, not all of them, are white people. I don't know if they actually grew up with a lot of friends who are not white, um, and, you know, just specific to this question, Asian. And I feel like maybe they only have ideas of what Asians are like. And when they write these characters, they're not really thinking about three-dimensional Asian characters, especially as romantic leads. I don't think they really maybe encountered that in real life. But the other thing that really that I wonder about is maybe it's fear, you know? Maybe it's it's the fear of casting an Asian male lead and, uh, you know, just maybe... Um, the executives of certain networks are like are scared to that Asian male leads will be on the TVs of, in families and houses and will take their women or something. I don't know, but it, I feel like I I have a crazy imagination and it oh, and it goes there sometimes, you know, like with Sesu Hayakawa who was the first Hollywood sex symbol in the 1910s. He was Japanese 
and he was opening movies and American women were just clamoring to go see him. And then, you know, all of a sudden, these, these studios will start, they started kind of assassinating his character and giving him roles that are very stereotypical that weren't such so leading man, you know? And it makes me wonder why. So, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's, it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I think Asian men in the industry are just like at the bottom of the pole, you know? There's the least demand for Asian males in this industry for, you know, when it comes to like film and TV. And then when there is a demand, they're kind, they're very stereotypical, you know? Either the guy that speaks with an accent and he's like the comedic butt of the joke or like Han from Two Broke Girls or he is a tech science math whiz, you know, geek or a kung fu master or what have you. But yeah. That's my little rant. <laughs> okay, well, Jake K here. I know that you're just getting started in your career. You have uh, been around for about five years or so at this point. So what's been your favorite character to play so far? My favorite character to play so far, must I have to go with Ryan Fu um, in the film Front Cover and Gil in the movie Wolves. I, I, yeah, I, I really love playing those two roles. Uh, Ryan Fu, man, such a complex character, very fun character to play. Uh, it was very, written very well by the director, um, Raymond Young. He fleshed him out very well. I really got to prep extensively for the character, which is really fun. I, um, just, you know, talked to a lot of my, you know, close gay friends who were in the fashion scene too, and, you know, just really got to just sink my teeth into um, the role. And then Gil, on the on the other hand, I didn't really have to do much prep because very similar to how I was in high school. You know, he's just this outspoken kind of wild kid who plays on the basketball team and has these friends who are just as wild. You know, they listen to, to hip-hop and, you know, play basketball and they're crazy about girls. You know, they're like high school seniors. And it was a, it was a, seemed like a mirror, you know, to uh, what, how I was in high school. So it was very fun. Could you tell us a little bit about Front Cover Movie? Because I, I saw the trailer and I read the synopsis and, and I just think it's it's so great that a movie like that is out in the world. And can you tell us a little bit, besides the synopsis of Front Cover, a little bit about how it explores the Asian versus Asian American identity? Yes. Well, it's it's, I think, does comment on how a lot of Asian Americans feel when they when they grow up in America, you know, especially when you have um, parents who are immigrants. A lot of times, you do have this um, confusion about your self identity. You know, you learn a culture in your house that's very different to the culture that you encounter every day outside of your house. You know, and it goes back to the you not really seeing yourself on TV. It can really hurt your uh, self perception. We do tackle that in the movie. And then you got, you know, Asians from Asia, you know, who are, who, who, you know, they don't necessarily have this confusion of their self-identity. They, they know who they are, you know, in terms of, you know, culture. So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic when you got, you have two characters who kind of meet and sort of clash in this film. 
because they own, they each have their own uh, battle with self-identity. It's just two from two different angles. Continuing on with the theme and, and talking about the movie front cover, what was the biggest challenge for you while filming this movie? Giving the director what he wanted. You know, a lot of these days, basically I shot, you know, almost every day and, you know, the, the days would be very long. And I really just wanted to give Ray what he wanted and to hear him say, move on or moving on. But I mean, I, honestly, there weren't that many challenges shooting. It was made probably just a fatigue factor. The crew was so great. The cast was on point. You know, Ray gave us freedom on set to try different things when after he got what he wanted, you know. So the only challenge, honestly, was just trying to get the takes as quick as possible. <laughs> One question I wanted to ask you, Jake, if anybody who's been on Twitter, um, a few months ago, our mutual friend, Keith Chow, he runs Nerds of Color, and he basically made a case with Netflix announcing that they were doing the Iron Fist series. There was a campaign for an Asian-American Iron Fist where the argument, at least from Keith Chow, was that seeing as we, you know, we had this white character who was going to go into like this, you know, Asian, you know, alternate reality or other universe, the idea was to make Danny Rand Asian-American in a way to reverse the cultural appropriation that we've seen in a lot of movies and TV when it comes to Asian culture. I just wanted to know what, what your thoughts were on the campaign. Did you think that having an Asian-American Iron Fist or Danny Rand could reverse that? And what are your thoughts in general about seeing how Asian culture is appropriated in movies and TV without actually casting Asian or Asian-American actors? Uh, well, yeah, first of all, I, I love that campaign. I think having an Asian American actor to play Danny Rand would have been great because first of all, there are no Asian American lead superheroes anywhere. You know, I, the, the only Asian like superheroes or villains that I can think of are very like the, the bit, you know, the bit players on like these movies that barely have any lines. And, you know, a lot of people make the argument that Oh, you know, you're deviating from the source material. Sure, but the source material is written in the 1970s. It's a different time. It's a different scope geographic. I honestly, I'm all for that. You know, I love, you know, I don't know if he got casted. Supposedly he got cast already, the Danny Rand character, but I, I would have loved to see an Asian American cast as Danny Rand. And yeah, I mean, shit. America loves to appropriate, uh, cultures, don't they? Um, <laughs> Show do. I, I mean, look, I'm not throwing any shade, but I mean, you know, like, I mean, don't, don't like white people have their own culture. I, you know, like, I, I honestly, it's a sincere question. Like, do y'all or not? And why do you have to, like, you know, you don't have to appropriate, you can appreciate. And then you can cast people of that culture that, that reflects that culture to represent that culture, you know? You don't have to just whiteface the roles and characters and cultures all the time. So, yeah, I think it's bullshit. Hi, Jake. It's Kayla. So what do you feel about the guilt that comes from the white community after they've been cast as a POC? Like, for example, after she's gotten her paycheck, you know, 
Rooney Mara had something to say. And it was, I regret it. How do you feel about that? Do you feel it's genuine or do you feel that they are only saying something because now they've gotten paid, but then they, they just, they're now feeling some kind of regret? It's a good question. I usually always like to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but I also am not blind. I want to go with the latter because you as an artist, as an adult artist, should be able to discern what's right and wrong and what's, I mean, how do you not, how do you as a white person, and who knows you're a white person, obviously, like, how do you say yes to playing another ethnicity or a race, especially when white people have all the choices and opportunities to play these great characters and roles day in and day out. And people of color really don't have that opportunity. Like you should know this by now. I mean, unless you live under a rock, then you wouldn't. But as an artist, you have to be conscious. And I mean, I feel like it doesn't make sense when you say, when you take the role and then after afterwards, after the backlash and you get paid, you say you regret it. I feel like you're just doing it because your publicist told you that it's good for your career if you do that. You know, I don't know the case with Rooney Mara, but like with Emma Stone taking on a half Asian role in Aloha, you don't look any Asian, you know, <laughs> um, like seriously, you know, one sixteenth Asian. So it's like she's had great roles. She's had a lot of these. She's got a chance to play great roles. And you're a movie star. You make a lot of money. Why? You know, why would you say yes? I mean, don't you? And you read the script. And, um, you know, she's just part of the problem. The director who cast, whoever the person is that cast it also should be held responsible. But as an actor, as an artist, you, ha- I think a lot of, you know, artists are conscious. Can they, they do see through you know, the pages that they're reading. And I just feel like they turn a blind eye and say, oh, this is a great opportunity. You know, maybe I can uh, stretch my range and play a half Asian girl in Hawaii. (laughs) Bullshit. Well, and that kind of leads me to my next question about you personally. What steps do you take when you go to audition for roles? Are you going for the roles that may call for someone that may look like you? Typical, you know, Asian stereotype that they want to cast? Or do you Go for the roles that are traditionally played by a white actor to show that not only white actors can portray these roles. Mm, mm. Okay, so um, when I first started working with uh, my manager and my agent, I uh, made it very clear that I did not want to be submitted for roles that are stereotypical and demeaning. They pretty much got it, you know, um, from the beginning. So... That was the first thing, because I, I don't have a lot of control as an actor in this industry of what I get cast for, but I think the little things I can control, I do, I do want to be clear. And they're very supportive of it. So I do, you know, they submit me on roles that are open to all ethnicities and roles that are specifically for people of color or Asians. You know, sometimes these roles, they'll, they'll say, yes, you know, uh, we want Asians, Latinos, Southeast Asians, and, you know, he's like a IT guy or a tech nerd kind of guy. And so, of course, sometimes you're, you're like, hey, maybe I can wear glasses and be a little nerdy. But at the end of the day, I make the choice to not do that, to not 
be a caricature and just kind of bring more myself to the role and uh, not be a walking stereotype and uh, just try to be truthful in the audition room. Yeah, I go out for all different kinds of roles. Um, some I feel like, like, oh, okay, this is originally written for a white person. They, they're open to seeing other ethnicities. Great. And sometimes it's strictly more like for people of color and for specifically Asian characters, actors. I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I'm, I'm curious to know, are you active on Twitter and do you live tweet with your fans? Shoot. I got fans. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Stop playing. Stop playing, Jay. I like that whoever asks me if I could, you know, like you got Rebecca. I mean, I think I, you know what, honestly, I talk to Rebecca 90% of the time on Twitter. I'm only active when she adds me. (laughs) I am not too active on Twitter. I, you know, I do get the notifications on my phones and then I'll reply or like stuff and that's it. But yeah, I mean, if you guys want me to be more active for y'all, I'll be a little more active. You, know? <laughs> you guys are cool as hell. So. Yeah. Yeah. And watch so, me like, like super like a wall after this day too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. So, um, Jake, can you just talk a little bit about maybe give two of your favorite shows past or present and how those particular shows have really inspired you in your own career, whether that be to create some kind of new avenues for Asian American characters, directing, acting, you know, talk a little bit about that. Huh. A past, a past show that I really loved and grew up watching was, um, Martin. Yes. Martin was so funny and it was one of, it was on the air at a very sensitive time for me. I didn't know who I was because once again, I, you know, I didn't really see myself on the TV that I was watching and I was, I didn't know my identity, you know, I was really confused. And then I saw, and I started watching Martin and I was like, wow, I like this guy, Martin. He's so different from like, these characters that I see on Saved by the Bell and Full House and shit like that, or are outside when I hang out with my friends or whatever. I loved Martin because he was just so outspoken. He said what he wanted to. He didn't care. And I really, it helped me with my identity, Martin, just to be more of myself and to express myself. And it was funny as shit, you know? Let's see. Current show. I like Master of None a lot. I've watched a couple of episodes and I'm going to finish season one soon, but, um, I like Master of None a lot. It's very, very diverse cast. You know, you got an Asian lead, Aziz Ansari, and it's great writing, uh, really funny, but it also tackles a lot of issues that are very relevant and it, uh, reflects society right now, like a misrepresentation of people of color in the industry. You know, appreciating your parents who are immigrants that came to this country and really literally sacrificed their lives to give us better ones, you know, and it's very inspiring. It it really motivates me to, you know, put my feet on the floor every morning, you know, fight the good fight and uh, advance the cause. So I have another question. I don't know if you were on Twitter that night, but the night of the Oscars, 
you know, a lot of people were watching for Chris Rock's opening monologue and the whole Oscar's so white campaign. And then there was a skit where he used, I think it was like three Asian American children and one Jewish child. I forget. But there was a skit that he used with Asian children and he made a joke about child labor laws. And there just seemed to be, at least that's what I was observing on Twitter, there just seemed to be like this kind of divide between black Twitter and Asian Twitter. <laughs> and so right. I just, so I, just went to, I didn't know that either. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, it, there was a lot of back and forth. And I just wanted to get your thoughts. Did you see the skit? Did you did you find it offensive? And then the other question, too, is because I know you live in New York. I'm a New York native, too. There's a lot of divide, too, because of the Peter Leanne case with the, the Asian-American officer that was prosecuted for killing Akai Gurley. There just seems to be a lot of tension between the African-American and the Asian-American community. How do you feel as the Asian-American? How can we work on coming to a place of understanding instead of playing the oppression Olympics of I have it worse than you or whatever? Like, how can we come to understand that we're really on the same side and we're really fighting the same fight? Mm. Oh, man, I did not watch the Oscars at all. Yeah, I was on Twitter for a little bit during it. I only read and heard about the uh, the skit with the three Asian kids, them being used as a uh, racial joke. Yeah, it's I it's pretty it's fucked up because they're I mean, first of all, they're kids, right? They had no idea that they were going to be used as a like a joke about Asian stereotypes, and you know the parents there know apparently too. So that was very disappointing. Yeah, I did see Chris Rock's uh, monologue. It seemed like he he was using the Oscar so white uh, hashtag or uh, subject to make it seem strictly it was a black and white thing. Like, you know, the black people were oppressed and black people are oppressed as well as all people of color are oppressed in the industry. But I felt like it, it was very ex- kind of exclusive to white and black people in his monologue. I thought he could have opened it, made it a little bit more broader. Oh man, with the, with the, uh, Kai Gurley and the uh, Peter Leanne case, so much nuance, you know, and it's just, uh, first of all, he shouldn't have been shot. He shouldn't have been killed. He didn't even have a weapon. The Peter Liang had no, you know, reason to shoot him. And I think he, like anyone else that kills someone, uh, should be tried and punished to what their offense was. What's causing the divide, I think, a lot with um, a lot of people are that he's a scapegoat, right? He's a scapegoat for all the white cops that killed the black men and women and never and are never really indicted or tried. Like, what happened with the, the dude that choked out Eric Garner? I mean, you got videos, two different videos, two different angles of him literally killing this man. And what happened? Nothing. You know? Even when the um, paramedic came, she barely gave him any attention. Like, as if he wasn't even human. I mean, I, I, it still really pisses me off when I think about that. Uh, it, it's really tough. It's really tough to... um come up with a, a a solution 
I think we need a lot more understanding conversation within the the community, um, the Black, Asian, Latino community, and just really understand that we're in a struggle together. We're not better or lower than anyone else. You know, if I'm oppressed, another person of color is just as oppressed, and I can't, you know, separate us and say, I'm dealing with my own shit, so your problems are irrelevant, you know? And I feel like with the Oscar So White thing and this and the case with Peter Liang, it almost seems like there is people that are up top watching and kind of they're manipulating Mm -hmm. this with the people of color. They're they're kind of like, this is what they want, you know, and, you know, they can be, you know, a lot of people, but I feel like it's a. there are people that are controlling this and putting people of color against each other when we should be coming together. And I'm sorry for being vague, but it just, it just, it's, it's hard to really put into words, but I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. I I do want, I do want to say it's white privilege has a lot to do with it, you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of, and I think it's a form of oppression when, you know, because of what white people, the privilege that they reap and also what they do puts people of color against each other, you know? Right. And I think it's very important to, to see that, you know, to really see it, to be aware, to be conscious of it. Yeah. Okay, so this being the Black Girl Nerds podcast, do you consider yourself to be a nerd? Because I... I know on Younger, when you guys were all playing video games, I was like, he seems way too relaxed and way too into the role. He must be <laughs> a little bit of a gaming nerd. Oh, I, I, you know what? I think I was very nerdy and I'm still, I can still be very nerdy. Yeah, nerd would be a part of, like me. I grew up playing a lot of video games, even that Tony Hawk game that I was playing on Younger, I definitely grew up playing that. I learned Korean by reading Dragon Ball Z comic books. I was one of the few kids who bought the Marvel DC Amalgam comics when they try to merge superheroes together. Whoa. I wow. remember that. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I totally do. <laughs> they weren't that good, as I could recall. You know what? They weren't. They looked cool. <laughs> they were good at the all. idea was cool, but they weren't that good. At- oh, I'm glad you remember, because I'm just like, wow, they're quiet. They don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we we know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I-, I played a lot of video games, read a lot of comics growing up. Um, A lot of the comics that I read were more Asian, but I did read a lot of Marvel. Read Dragon Ball Z, Kenshin. Oh, my God. So many other ones I can't remember, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty nerdy. Even now, I can pretty I can nerd out. Yeah. Do you have a Crunchyroll account? Be honest. A what? A what? <laughs> the Crunchyroll for um the anime subscription site? Oh no, I don't. Oh, but now you will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Sure. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna look Crunchyroll, like C R U N C H Y R O L L. Yeah. Yep. Ooh. Okay, I'm gonna look into that for sure. I just found out about Crunchyroll last year myself. 
I don't really watch anime, but I've just found out about it. And yeah, they have a pretty good inventory of anime. And don't they also have K dramas on there as well? On I think they do. Yeah. Mm. So. Oh, have you guys um finished or seen uh Attack of Titans? Oh, I'm halfway done. Attack on Titans? Yeah? Oh, man. So fucking intense. Yeah, I stopped after, like, the seventh episode. It is intense. And I had to sleep with, like, the lights on. Like, no joke. No, I'm serious. Capitalism <laughs> is a no for me. I just, I can't. I can't yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> and those Titans look scary and crazy as shit. Like, they do. Yeah. Uh-uh. I'm not finishing that show. <laughs> no, go finish, go finish Master of None. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so, Jake, thanks so much for being on our show. Can you tell us really quick where we can find you on the web and give us all of your social media shout-outs so we can talk to you on Twitter? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I, this was great. This was awesome. You can find me on the social medias uh, through my handle, the Jake Choi. Yeah, T H E J K E C H O I. Awesome. And then on the internet, do you have a website where we can find you for your information and any current projects that you're working on? Yes, my website is uh, www.jakechoi.com. I have a few things in the works. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. But yeah, I mean, nothing, you know, nothing crazy, you know, nothing written in stone, but. Uh, it's in the process, so fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jake, for coming on the show, and we'd love to have you back sometime. Yes, thank you so much. I mean, I had a great time. Yeah, we'll uh, stay connected uh, on Twitter, you know what I mean? We'll live tweet. What do you call it? <laughs> live tweet? Yes, yeah. live tweet. <laughs> okay, don't get mad if I don't live tweet, like, ASAP. Uh-huh. You know? No, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Do you watch um Daredevil? Daredevil is 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 premiering on on Netflix and it's the second season starts oh. next Friday, so we will be live tweeting that. Oh, yeah. okay, dope. You know, I saw I saw the first two episodes and you know it was dope. Like the fight scenes were amazing. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean they're better than most movies. And um, all right, I'm gonna have to get caught up in that. Just, just watch season two. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Jake. I really appreciate it. It was really fun having you on the show. Likewise. Thank you so much, girls. Wow. So. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Have a good night. Great you night. Too. Yes. We'll live tweet soon. <laughs> yes. <Cool>. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. New Orleans native, Jarrett Williams grew up watching his family work tirelessly to get out of the Magnolia Projects, which inspired his own formidable work ethic. At 31, Jarrett is soon to have a three-creator-owned series, Hyper Force Neo, Super Pro KO, and Knuckle Up. A mix of all the things Jarrett loved as a kid himself, manga, video games, cartoons, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Jarrett's style is loud and colorful. Thanks for tuning in to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Kayla, and I am very excited to have our special guest on today. If you are a fan of Super Pro KO Wrestling Comics, this is for you, so you should be really excited. And I have with me Jarrett Williams. Hi, Jarrett. 
Hi, Kayla. Thank you guys uh, so much for having me on. Uh, shout out to you and Jamie uh, and also your, your listeners as well. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no, we're super excited to have you on. Um, I think it's going to be a great, great, great interview. So just for our listeners, can you give us a little bit of an insight into your background, where you grew up and uh, what type of quote unquote nerd things you were into while you were growing up? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, born in 84, so I'm a little bit over, you know, about 31, getting ready to go on 32 in a few months. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I grew up um, pretty much an artsy kid. Um, from around the age of five or six, I started really showing interest in drawing. And my mom was kind of really cool about it. Like, um, I was an only child my first uh, six or seven years, and my mom would bring me with her grocery shopping. And she would just leave me in the comic book aisles while she would shop around. And so whatever I kind of was looking at, whenever she was done gathering her groceries, she would just buy for me. And it usually would be like an Archie or a Sonic or a, uh, my favorite was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at the time. Um, and that's sort of really what kind of, kind of, I guess, shifted my interest towards sort of comic books and, and the whole culture. Um, my grandfather was really good about it too. He would read the newspaper every day. And I remember distinctly during the summers, he would, um, always read the, what do you call it? The funny section. And then he would <laughs> hand it to me. Um, and then I would usually like read my favorite comic strips and then cut them out and paste them into like a journal. And my favorites were like Foxtrot. I loved Curtis by Ray Billingsley. I loved Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and then at the end of the summer, I would have all of these like little journal collections of all these comic strips because this was before they would actually publish a lot of that stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's really what kind of got me into comics. And, um, at the same time, I never really was too, uh, I, I wasn't really that good at sports. Like I would play like football with my friends, but I was never really like coordinated to like catch that well or like. <laughs> Even playing basketball was kind of like a mess because I was really lanky and I had the height, but I just wasn't coordinated. Um, and so, and even when it came to like uh, Sundays in our house, everyone would be watching football in the living room and I would be in my room playing Mario. So it was just like, <laughs> uh, but thankfully my, my folks were pretty cool about it. They uh, never, I mean, they never really ostracized me for it. Um, I, I, I loved video games. I still do, but uh of course, you know, games were really expensive. And so I would get like maybe one, one game every year. And I got really good about trading games with my friends so that I could play like the new stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. But yes, so in, those interests have just followed me into adulthood. I ended up going to college. Um, well, no, in high school, I went to an art-based um, high school called the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts where I met other artists. And um, I kind of did this thing where I went to sort of a public school called McMain for half the day and then went to this art school for the second half of the day. And that's really where I started making friends who were musicians and dancers and into theater. And it just really made me feel like, oh, okay, like there are other people out there like me. Um, and then when I went to college, I got really into like, which is the Savannah College of Art and Design um, in Savannah, Georgia. That's where I went uh, to study sequential art or comic book art. And then I started going to comic conventions and getting really, really into the comic scene. And, um, and that's sort of kind of what brought me to, I guess, where I am now, uh, that sort of like trajectory, you know? That's that's awesome. I, I know the, you know, being the Southern Node, I'm from Mississippi, so I can definitely relate um, to, you know, being in the South. And even though your parents didn't, they were really accepting. There's some people that aren't as accepting and people that aren't exactly like them. So that's amazing that your parents were really supportive 
of what you liked and didn't force anything on you. So I think that's really important, especially now for even more parents to hear that, um, that, you know, not everyone's going to be into the same thing. And I think they gave you all the right tools. And I think that's amazing. No, my mom, um, so I asked her about it and it turns out like, you know, she grew up in the fifties and so she was really into romance comics. Um, like Kathy Keene and, and, you know, of course, Archie. So I think it made sense for her to just extend that on to me because that's what she did. I mean, my mom is to this day, she, all she does is read um, and she's really into books. And so I guess she figured, okay, he's reading, he's not getting into trouble, you know? So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's good. So for when you're actually doing your stories and figuring out what you're going to do next, where do you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I noticed I love to travel, and um, that for whatever reason, whether I, if I'm on like a plane or if I'm like taking a really awesome road trip somewhere, I have the best ideas when I'm just sort of by myself, either traveling or on the road. Um, to the point where I'll even keep a sketchbook, um, like in the seat beside me, or I'll record things on my phone if an idea comes to mind. Um, it's something I guess about that isolation or just that period of like transitioning from one location to the next where I just get all of these ideas. Um, and then a lot of it's also based off of my interests. So like, again, you know, when it comes to like video games or even anime, like I'll just think about like that feeling of watching some of my favorite cartoons um, or, or shows when I was a kid and like, how can I tap into that in comic form? How can I bring like that fun or that flavor to my comics? Because, um, for whatever reason, like when I was a kid, I kind of grouped all of those things together. I thought, okay, a cartoon is a comic. I didn't really think about them as two separate things at the time for some reason. I was like, oh, you know, it's just like, you know, you watch Turtles and there's the Turtle show, there's the Turtle games. And so that's sort of how my mind thinks. It thinks very, um, think of things in a very like kind of uh, multifaceted way, I think. And it, it's also sometimes really hard for me to focus. And so, um, I try to just like, you know, write about the things around me. I try to write about my own experiences or at least inject my own experiences into my comics in a lot of ways, um, just so that I have that point of connection. I know that can kind of sometimes come across as, you know, a, a flawed like Mary Sue approach, but mm-hmm. it's kind of worked for me in a lot of ways. Um, just because I feel like if I can kind of connect with what's happening um, or at least inject sort of a real experience into the story, it might be a little bit more relatable in a way. Um, uh, but yeah, I try to just draw a lot of it from my own experience. I do. Okay, so so going in further into that, how do you think growing up in the South, going to school in the South, especially in Savannah, um, has helped shaped how you create and develop your characters? Yeah, um, I think the South is interesting just because you know it's 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 weird. It's like, and you probably know this coming from Mississippi too, but. Um, the South can be extremely warm in some ways and then very divisive and um, in terms of like the people that you interact with and the situations you just kind of find yourself in. Um, it's just, it's just this weird juxtaposition to me of like love and also like just furious hate and weird emotions. Like for example, when I was a kid, I remember being like six years old um, and you know, my family was very hands on. So like my grandfather, my aunt, my mom, my little brother, my cousins, we were all pretty much usually under the same roof interacting with each other. And I felt nothing but love as a kid. And then, 
you know, I would see these images on television. Like I remember seeing like the Rodney King beating and like I was six and I was like, mom, why are they beating this guy up? I didn't get it because, you know, I'm a little six year old and I'm watching a guy getting beat up on television. And I remember my mom trying to explain to me just, you know, that this is the world we live in. And, you know, you might experience, you know, different things kind of being like a black guy in America. And I remember as a kid, like I couldn't understand that, like. You know, my, my world up to that point was like cartoons and turtles. And all of a sudden I'm seeing like police brutality and just like these really like dark images. And then, you know, you start reading stories you know, about our history and um, even like some of the required reading in school, like to kill, a, to kill a Mockingbird and these different things to sort of open your eyes to like the dark side of the South. Um, but yet I was still protected from a lot of that because of my family. Um, and so I think kind of growing up in the South, you kind of get these really like um just you just you just kind of leave with these sort of weird like i love it but then i i feel the need sometimes to get away from it and even in my stories there's a lot of like that conflict within characters where um like in this comic i'm drawing called hyperforce neo these kids are like heroes but then some some aspects of their personal lives at home aren't really the best um which isn't necessarily like my situation but i understand sort of like those contrasting dynamics in a day to day i think the south like you can't you can't like not live in, you can't live in the south and not have sort of this um sort of this filter to which you kind of view the world in a way if that makes sense if any of that makes sense yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i think i think with growing up in the south um there's also um where you, for some people, and I don't know if you're included, so you want to you want to see the best in people, especially growing up black in the South. Um, so I feel like you do want to see the best in people, and it's kind of hard to walk around with that mentality and then see some of the things that you see. Um, so I think that you being able to come and bring in that to your characters, that's good. Um, because not everybody is going to have the same lifestyle, the same home life. And I think that that is inclusive. And I think that that's good. So that's another thing with the diversity and inclusion. How do you think important, how important is this for you with comics now, um, especially dealing with um, a lot of the things we're dealing with, with film and TV um, when they're doing the adaptations of the the comics and the books, how do you, how are you feeling about the diversity that we're getting? Um, I it's interesting. I kind of feel like we're on the right track. It's just there's still so much more that can be done. Um, a buddy of mine the other day, um, named Ulysses Farinas, he posted this like a uh, picture that was it kind of broke down the statistics of like you know uh, groups within the the book publishing world, and I think it was like four percent within the uh, the publishing industry are African-American. And it kind of just broke it down like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I feel like I know more people now that look like me in comics than I did even five years ago mm-hmm. that I can like name, you know what I mean? But there's still so much more we can do. And I, I talked to a little bit about it. Um, I did this little interview with Previews um, last month because they were doing a thing on black creators and comics and I said it would be really awesome if one day we didn't you know look at diversity in comics as injecting like maybe one or two minority characters and yay we've done it you know like um I I, I like I like when I read a story and it doesn't feel like 
of, you know, the one or, or however many ethnic characters, they don't feel like they're there just because they're there for that reason. You know what I mean? And, um, and I feel like I would like to just to see more, um, stories where you just feel like it feels natural. It doesn't feel forced. It just feels like these characters are here or the care or the creator created said characters. Like for instance, with me in this story, um, I had, a, or with super pro KO, I had, um, in that story the the main character is white. And I had a, a person email me once um, early on and say, you know, you're black. Why isn't your main character black? And I remember replying because I didn't, had never got that question before. And I said, you know, I feel like I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. And when I imagined this concept, the character just happened to be white. It wasn't something I really uh, felt the need to force. You know what I mean? And and this story with Hyperforce Neo, the main character just happens to be black and there are two characters on the team with the main character that happen to be Asian. And um, it's not something I feel like I'm forcing to happen. It's just kind of organically happening. But I also realize I'm coming from the standpoint of being a minority. So kind of the way I view the world tends to be a little bit more, I think, um, or how do I say this? I, I tend to see the world from the lens of someone who um, knows how it feels to grow up here being a minority, but also, you know, I went to schools that were mixed. I've always had, you know, a nice, uh, diverse range of friends. Um, uh, in college, I met, you know, uh, I made friends who were like, you know, trans and, um, you know, openly gay. And, and I think that was important for me. And, and I feel like in my stories, it's important for that representation to be there as well, too. Um, but I definitely, definitely think um, we still have a long way to go. I think what's good now is you see more editors in comics who are, you know, um, you know, I've seen a wide range of ethnicities there. You're seeing more writers. You're seeing more women. You're seeing just more and more and more. But there still needs to be even more. So, um, but I'm hopeful. I try to be an optimist by nature. I'm more of a, a glass half full kind of guy. Um, I think we are make we're putting forth the right steps now, but there's definitely more room for more creators and a broader range of stories for sure. So for me, what I w would like to know from you, what were some of your favorite diverse characters that you grew up reading about that you connected with? or may or may not have connected with, but on some level related to. Yeah, um, as a kid, uh, in fact, I was talking about this yesterday. I remember liking Nightcrawler just because his story seemed so, like, tortured, and you know, <laughs> he was the total outcast, but then he had these really badass powers, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so him, I loved the turtles, which I guess, you know, they're easy to relate to because they're, they're animals. They're like little creatures. So, like... <laughs> But I loved Raphael because he was the one that was, like, to me, the most outspoken. And he didn't just go along with, like, Leonardo's uh, plans. And he, he wasn't a suck-up like Leonardo. So I loved Raphael. Um, so those were definitely two of my favorites. Um, and But also, I mean, I loved, like, Jughead because he just seemed to be kind of, like, nonchalant about life and just kind of, you know, just didn't really have a care in the world. And so I liked that character a lot, too. Um so yeah, those were some of my my faves. Um, but Turtles was everything to me as a kid. Like <laughs> my mom kind of played into it, so I had like the turtle sheets, the turtle soap dispenser. She hung <laughs> like action figures from like the air vent in like my bedroom. Um, yeah, my mom was pretty cool about that. But when I turned, um, I want to say maybe fourth or fifth grade, 
Um, when I got into the, that time in my life, I remember a friend calling me on a Friday night and saying, dude, you have to turn on the television and like turn it to sci-fi. And there was Akira on. And I remember we were on the phone and I'm like, what am I watching? Like it blew my mind just seeing like anime for the first time and to see cartoon characters like taking part in like violent like activities. <laughs> but also it felt cool and it felt like I shouldn't be watching it. Um, and so that kind of really kind of got me into anime and I made a friend early on of a buddy of mine, a best friend as a kid who ended up moving from New Orleans out. Uh, he went to Michigan and then he moved out to LA. Mm -hmm. And I guess when he was in California, he had access to the anime channel. And so he would like mail me uh, these VHS tapes where he would record like magic night, Ray earth and sailor moon and dragon ball Z uncut. Um, and sailor moon was the one that was like, to this day, it's still my favorite anime. Are you excited for season three of Sailor Moon Crystal? Okay, I'll be honest. I couldn't, <laughs> watch, I couldn't watch it. Like, I tr I got two episodes in, and I was like, I don't know. This doesn't feel right. Oh. Like, like, it felt like I felt dirty a little bit. So I was like, maybe I should just take a step back. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what it was about it, but I guess maybe because before it came out, I, like, binge-watched all of like Sailor Moon all the way through stars, like the movies, everything. Oh, wow. Because um, I'm really into Sailor Moon. And so, like, I think for whatever reason, the aesthetic was just maybe too jarring for me, even though it was definitely closer to, like, the style in a lot of ways of the comic. Yeah. Um, but I've been told by many friends that I need to give it a fair shot, mm -hmm. you know? It's it's really good. Um, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I was really happy and... You know, it was just something you looked forward to because you got your two weekends out the month where they would debut, and I was there every every day. Right. I think it's um, and I, I know some people that didn't like it because they grew up watching it, the English dub, and they weren't really into the original. Right. So I think that that was a lot of the backlash from it. Um, but I think it's still good. Are there any other animes that you still watch or that you're really into? Yeah, I've been watching um. Ronin Warriors, and I'm starting to, like, rewatch Saint Seiya. Um, I watched a lot of, like, Project Echo, and I remember liking Tenchi Muyo as a kid as well, mm -hmm. um, just because, again, it felt like I shouldn't be watching it. Um, the one on anime that I'm kind of, I feel guilty about that I watched a lot of, but I haven't watched it all is Ranma, because I love the concept. Mm -hmm. um, and I had quite a few of the comments, but I just haven't watched a lot of the the shows. Can I ask too, like growing up in Mississippi, like what was your access to anime too? I'm curious. <laughs> I was from there, military child. So I lived everywhere. So I had kind of the experience you had with schools because military based schools really diverse. You don't know who you're going to go to school with. So I think it kind of prepared me to just kind of be accepting to anyone that I met. Um, so for me, that's why. And then, so I got to meet all kinds of people and I remember when I met one friend and she showed me, I can't remember what it was, but then I was like, all right, I'm hooked. I've already, I've already been the tomboy. I've always been into drawing, always been into comics. And then she showed me anime and I was like, oh, that was dangerous. So yeah, I have a crunchy roll account and everything. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Like, I don't know if you felt this way. Because as a guy, I felt like I couldn't even, like, talk about the fact that I like Sailor Moon. Like, it was, like, a dark, like, secret for me as a kid. Like, I didn't talk about it with my, my closest friends. I would just go home, watch it, and keep it to myself. And there was this really 
pretty sizable, like, a Vietnamese student population at my school. And I went to class one day, and these girls were trading these Sailor Moon cards. And I was like, I got to get in on this. I got to, like, <laughs> work my way in with this crew. And so I started collecting Sailor Moon cards and buying them from them, like, um, for, like, a dollar a pop or something crazy like that. But I felt like I couldn't really share my interest because, you know, it was – at the time, I was so concerned about appearing like a you know a masculine boy, and here I am like into these colorful like girls and <laughs> waving wands and stuff, you know. So I think it was the opposite for me because like um, when Pokemon came out, I was living on military base, and I remember we moved to Atlanta, and um, I got in trouble. I got called to the principal's office because the kid was really upset because I hustled him out of his Pokemon cards, and my mom did not know I was into Pokemon, so I was like, she's gonna hate me. <laughs> Like she's gonna feel I'm not feminine enough. <laughs> so. Oh my god! Um, speaking of the going back to the South and Pokemon, I remember like uh, there was this weird point because my little brother got really into Pokemon, like for real, for real. And I remember like you know my we grew up fairly religious, so I was always in church, and I remember hearing a sermon about Pokemon being evil. And <laughs> oh, wow, I doesn't have it. I was like, no, there is no way Pokemon is not gonna be in this house. It's not evil. I was trying to find all these articles like on AOL about how you know it's just you know being exaggerated that it's innocent. I don't know if you remember that or if you encountered that at all, but I, I remember it. I did. I got a lot of that going to church in the south and it was a lot of random things because for me growing up in the south it was harry potter harry potter's the devil and i'd be sitting there like getting right back in the car after church and picking up my harry potter book that my mom bought me like haha (laughs) 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 that was me so i'd be like i'm not gonna stop reading this book that's that's not gonna happen (laughs) but you know i got a lot of that and i think that was you know that's just part of you know growing up in the south it's a lot of well, this is, it's something new that people don't understand. Right. So they're scared of it. And for me, a lot of it, I did, you know, the older I've gotten, the more my nerd has come out. And I feel, I don't know if that's been your case where you've just lit it all out. Yeah. yeah. Now And now it's more socially acceptable. I think that's the thing. Now nerd culture is very, it's getting to that point where it's very acceptable, especially with the Marvel movies coming out. Um in the DC movies, I think that it's become more acceptable. So now in the South and, you know, um, do you go to Dragon Con in Atlanta? You know what? I haven't been to Dragon Con in like a few years, but I definitely go to like to Heroes Con, New York mm-hmm. Comic Con every year. Um, I want to go back to Comic Con, but it's definitely like work for me to get there, you yeah. know? Because <laughs> um, then you want to go and of course you want to like buy everything too. And then you got to think about how you're going to get it back home when you're like living on the East Coast. So... Um, but no, I love I love the con scene still. It's it's interesting too because I've talked to some creators who like they don't they would never say it openly, but they really hate it. And I'm just like, for me, it's like a chance for me to get out of my house and see everybody. And, <laughs> you know, I think cons are for the introverted extroverts and everyone because mm-hmm. they you're sitting here, you're reading these comics, you're watching these movies, you're into these books, you're into all of these shows. And you're kind of secluded at home, but then you get to go to these places and meet people who have the same interests as you. So I know that there's some people that aren't into it. Um, it's I'm an introverted extrovert. So for one, for me to go to a con, it's a lot of fun for me. I went to San Diego Comic-Con. That was my first time going there last year. Very yeah. overwhelming. Um, 
especially seeing the shipping site for people to ship their stuff home that they were buying. Yeah. <laughs> that was that threw me off. I'm like, but this is genius. <laughs> Whoever thought of this is genius. Yeah. But I think, yeah, it's a work to get out there. Um, but the, I just, you know, the con scene is pretty big. Um, and I think the Dragon Con in Atlanta has helped a lot in the South. Um, even, uh, you know, MegaCon in Florida. I think that those, it's becoming way more acceptable and people are just, you know, they're getting into it and you're meeting people. And I think that that's something in the South that has changed from when I was younger because it just wasn't talked about. I remember my mom getting the phone call about the Pokemon cards and her saying, okay, so what's up with this? But then I remember coming home and she had bought me a Pokemon comforter. So she is accepting <laughs> yeah, of it. Like, I'm getting mixed messages right now, mom. I'm getting like... <laughs> That's and you know she, when she asked me she's like what's what's going on and and then she you know I told her you know I was like I, I bought these I, I bought a pack of cards hustled some kid out of a really good car I don't know whatever I was really good at getting the good cards and giving kids some my you know subpar cards for Pokemon yeah. so you know and then I fell off the card scene because I wasn't into Yu-Gi-Oh as much as a lot of other people were I would watch the show I just wouldn't play the cards. The show is so spastic. My little brother was upset. <laughs> obsessed with Yu-Gi-Oh too. I think for him the cutoff was Beyblade, but like Yu-Gi-Oh was his jam. Um, <laughs> and I would watch the show and I'm like, I don't know what is happening. I just see like cards being laid down and then like monsters popping up. It just was like with Pokemon it was just like it was straightforward. Just straightforward, you know? Like I never really understood why the humans were necessary in Pokemon world, but I appreciate Pokemon. <laughs> and I think that that's even to this day cuz now I have a 7-year-old and I'm like, okay, I can, he's into Pokemon and he'll say these ones I've never heard of, but I remember <laughs> handing him, I had my, I still had my original handbook with the original 151. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave him that and he was like, oh, that's so cool. But he'll come in. He's like, you know, this Pokemon. And I'm like, I've never heard of this Pokemon because <laughs> I stopped watching and I stopped playing, but you know, let's, let me go in and learn with you. And I think that's a, another big thing too as these kids are coming up with, you know, some of the same things that we did and it's making it easier for us to have that conversation with them to show, Hey, we were into these things too. Right. So I think that's good. So what I want to ask you, if you can give us some insight into your new series coming out next month, Hyperforce yeah, Neo. Yeah. yeah. I'm super excited about it. Like I, um, I had the opportunity to go overseas last year. I went to um, Belgium to visit a friend, and then I went over to Hong Kong. And I was on the, like, plane from Belgium to Hong Kong, really, like, just coming up with all these ideas. And when I got to Hong Kong, I was definitely, like, overwhelmed by, like, the scene and, like, the vibe of just, like, this old, like, uh, sort of the, the, the old tradition of, you know, uh, mainland China and, and, and also all these really crazy Akira-esque skyscrapers like side by side. It was like this weird juxtaposition of all these different things. And I was like, this is kind of dope. Um, and I had this idea of like, well, why am I not like drawing like a mecha robot something? Um, like that might be kind of fun to draw. And then I, you know, I had all of these kids that I was drawing in my sketchbook too, but just out of context. And I was like, what if I had a story where these kids were like piloting robots, um, but they also had to like juggle the day to day of being, you know, students and, and young kids. That could be kind of fun. And so I kind of just kept building off of that. And it kind of grew into what Hyperforce Neo is now, um, which has kind of become the story of these kids who find these like mystical keys 
that allow them to take on this sort of powered suits, these, these hyperforce suits, um, to take on an alien invasion happening um, at their city. And they live in the future, so there's like robots and um, all this fun technology. They're all really tapped into social media. So like throughout the comic, you got you get hints of like what certain characters are thinking. Um, and you can actually watch their followers numbers, like their follower numbers grow throughout the comic, which I kind of like, I don't know why I threw that in, but I kind of like it. Um, <laughs> but then the aliens themselves too, they're also finding these keys um, and they're piloting these giant robots, but then they have an advantage because they can also take on human forms. So like the fun comes in with these kids um, fighting these aliens after school usually, but then during the day they're interacting with these aliens who are in human form and developing friendships and relationships too. Um, so I thought that would be kind of fun um, as well. So it's it's been a lot of fun to draw. The first issues like. 48 uh, pages long because when I was a kid, I loved giant size issues of anything. So I just felt like it was extra special because it was twice as long, you know? <laughs> um, and so, and then it's full color. Uh, Jeremy Lawson's been doing the colors. I just do the inks and the, and the writing and lettering. Um, but it's been a lot of fun to draw. Um, I will admit the robot scenes are hell to draw just because I didn't really think about like, oh, yeah, robots are cool, but now you have to draw them. You have to <laughs> the buildings and the windows and the billboards and the, the buildings being destroyed. Um, but it's it's a lot of fun. And I think um, what's good about the story is it takes place over the course of a school year. So by the end of the story, you kind of get to see how these characters have grown, like, over the course of one year of, like, junior high. Um, and also, like, how they've hopefully, like, solved the alien threat. Um, it's a lot of fun. So... That's awesome. I think it's going to be really good and it's going to be a hit. And what day is that going to be dropping? It, it, it comes out on um, April 13th. Okay. So everyone's going to be on the lookout for that. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the segment today. It was awesome. Great interview. And I just want you to tell us if you can um, let us know where we can find you on the interwebs and you can give us your social media shout outs. Oh, sure, Kayla. Um, I'm Jarrett Williams, so it's J-A-R-R-E-T-T, um, last name Williams, and it's Jarrett Williams on Instagram, on Twitter, um, on Facebook. I'm pretty, like, anybody can follow me. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> and um, also, I have a website. Um, it's superprokeo.squarespace.com, um, and also I have superprokeo.tumblr.com, which I'm trying to get more into. I haven't really quite figured Tumblr out yet, but I've been posting more there, and I do a lot of these uh, – Art, uh, art in progress videos um, on Instagram that I like to do as well too. So you can see my work at any of those places. That, that's awesome. Thank well, good talk. No, thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm, we have a lot in common. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. And I, I love connecting with people that have the same interests as me. So I think this is a really, really, really great show. Our final segment takes place on the Warner Brothers lot in Los Angeles, California, at the Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice press conference. Had the chance to interview several of the cast members from the film. Some of the featured cast members were Henry Cavill, Ben Affleck, Gal Gadot, Amy Adams, Lawrence Fishburne, Hallie Hunter, Jesse Eisenberg, Diane Lane, and also filmmaker Zack Snyder. 
in the press conference, there were several questions asked, including one by yours truly about Wonder Woman. So I wanted to add in this little tidbit because I thought, first of all, it was a really great question to ask, not just because I was the one that asked it, but the way Gal answered it. It meant it resonated so much that it came with a lot of applause. It was the only question that was answered amongst all that garnered any applause, mind you. The moment that I had mentioned that I'm with Black Girl Nerds, let's just say that Gal Gadot did the international symbol for raising the roof hands um, in the air, which was great. So it's inspiring and also comforting at the same time that Gal was very excited to see an outlet that represents um, women of color and also uh, empowering women and that she's fulfilling the role that is so iconic and so heroic in this huge blockbuster film that is slated to come out this weekend. So take a listen to the sound clip. For more information about the press conference, go to blackgirlnerds.com. There will be a transcript of the 45-minute press conference that took place, along with tons of photographs and information about the film. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening in to this episode. I think this was fun. So we'll start with a trailer of the film, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, along with that press snippet. And remember, Friday, March 25th, is when Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice is released in theaters nationwide. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy? We, as a population on this planet, have been looking for a savior. We're talking about a being whose very existence... They are not telling us the truth. ...challenges our own sense of priority in the universe. Human beings have a horrible track record of following people of great power. Power corrupts. And absolute power Power. corrupts. Absolutely. Chaos. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. We know better now, don't we? Devils don't come from hell beneath us. They brought their war here. They come from the sky. The world has been so caught up with what he can do that no one has asked what he should do. That's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel. My outlet is Black Girl Nerds. Um, my readers are very excited that I'm here because I have a website that's about empowering women and women of color. 
So, yes, this question is for Gal. They're like, interview Wonder Woman. So, um, I wanted to ask you, Gal, first of all, um, did you watch any of the Linda Carter series, uh, Wonder Woman, growing up when you were researching this role? And also, um, what advice do you have for women out there who are actresses that are interested in doing films that are about comic book superheroines? Interesting. Um, the first question was, I'm sorry, I'm so dyslexic. No, I was sorry to exhaust your voice. In the part of the TV show, I was minus five. But after they cast me for this role, uh, I did watch a couple of, um, of uh, episodes. I think that Linda Carter was a magnificent Wonder Woman, and it's certainly big shoes to, to fit into. Uh, but when they cast me for this movie, Zach and everyone had a very clear vision on who Wonder Woman should be and, 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 and what's her story and how they want to tell it. And all I had to do is really give my own notes and inputs and just embody everything and, and be her. And um, I truly think, you know, I'm, I, I have a four-year-old daughter and she adores princesses. At the same time, she would tell me, the princess, she's so weak, she falls asleep, the prince will come and save her and kiss her and he's the hero. So I'm so happy that, I'm so happy to be the one who's, who's gonna tell the Wonder Woman story. It's such a very, it's such an important story to be told, to tell. And, and, and I'm grateful for it, but I also think that it's so important for girls and boys to have a female strong superhero to look up to. And the more the merrier, and, and there's plenty of room to many more women to come. And um, I'm very, very happy to be, to be a part of that. I, lo I love that you just said girls and boys. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe you have a question first.